Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 32, Toxic Mold Illness and You. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to Fusion Health Radio. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with Dr. Michael Smith. Michael, how are you today? I'm well, yourself? I'm doing just fine. Uh, we have a pretty interesting uh, subject uh, that we're talking about today, toxic mold, and um, I guess how that relates to our dear listeners. And I'm getting a little bit of heebie-jeebies because I'm looking at that stack of notes that you have there. <laughs> Sounds like you've got a lot to cover. I don't think heebie-jeebies is a big enough diagnosis for how much we have to cover. I think it's going to be like... Um, Oh, I don't actually know what would make that funnier. Well, we'll we'll see as uh, as we get into it, uh, dear listener. If this is the first time you've tuned in, uh, Michael and I sit down every couple of weeks or so, and we talk about health-related things. Michael's the expert. I'm the guy with the curious mind, and I try to control and prompt him into making things a little clearer for me, and in hope, hopes that that makes it clearer for you as well. Um, episode thirty-two. We've been at this for a little while. Um, if you are a long-time listener, thanks for being here. And if this is your first time here, uh, remember you can follow us on Stitcher and iTunes and Podbean and a whole bunch of different places to get your favorite podcast. Um, Michael, before we get into today's topic, uh, last time we were here, we talked about uh, episode 31. What did we talk about? Acne. Acne. Right. <laughs> Give folks a little bit of a rundown of what they might have missed. Uh, so we just talked about the different kinds of acne that happen and more importantly, how, um, I guess how telling the modern approach to treatment is about what's really going on. Cause if you're a person with acne, uh, especially a young person, you're going to probably end up either on some kind of antibiotic and if you're a woman, some kind of birth control. So we just dug into why it is that things like antibiotics and birth control, uh, would affect a- acne given what, um, and most of us just have the perception that acne is because of clogged pores. And again, um, if the treatment is antibiotics or uh, sex hormones, clearly there's something much deeper going on clogged pores. So we uh, we dug into all that. We dug into some acne. <laughs> we, we, Ooh. we popped some theories. <laughs> Should we make some more squishy kind of noises here? <laughs> okay, I need I need a bucket. <laughs> I'm throw up. Yeah, uh, a very enlightening um bit of information about uh, about pimples and acne and that sort of thing. Uh, but today we're going to talk about something perhaps less gross, I'm not sure, uh, mold and uh, toxic mold syndrome. Um, where do we start with today's topic? Perhaps um, defining what is mold? Yeah, so obviously I think most people are aware that uh, decomposition is a pretty uh, inherent part of how the natural world works. Um, I think most people have seen, uh, I don't know if you find a dead animal somewhere, if you're out hiking or something that it's, it looks like a big ball of sort of fuzzy, um, filaments of, well, what's called a polysaccharide, but, um, basically there are funguses that live inside most mammals, including humans, uh, specifically for humans to be part of the candida spectrum. And uh, the job of those funguses is as soon as you die, their job is to basically decompose your body and turn you into your component mineral elements so that the soil gets a really nice little, 
I don't know, daily vitamin boost of you. <laughs> that's, that's the old uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at that uh, decomposition process, um, that's going to happen in any kind of organic material. Now our houses, most of our houses are made out of mostly organic material, uh, especially things like wood and drywall and anything that has uh, a lot of cellulose or carbohydrate. So once a fungus gets in there and starts metabolizing that carbohydrate um, and it has enough uh, liquid, uh, or water to maintain that cyclic engine, it'll just keep basically going until your house is a pile of mush. It mm. might take a thousand years, but it's just sitting there gradually decomposing your house. Now, that can happen on food. That can happen uh, inside people with really weakened immunity, where uh, whatever fungus mold yeast is happily trying to decompose you will just begin whenever it feels like it's time, mm. which is actually a really kind of subtle but maybe freaky thing, but it does, I think, um, suggest maybe an appreciation for the way Chinese medicine looks at health, you know, in the sense of what you call your deep vitalism or your chi or your, your deepest, uh, capacity to adapt to the world, you know, and you could decide that the idea of chi is literally true. Like there is some force, you know, like the force from Star Wars, uh, or not, but we can, I think, appreciate that somebody who's got a lot of robust vitality, uh, is very unlikely to end up with something like, you know, a chronic infection or fungus uh, infection or something like that. Whereas people with poor diets and weakened immunity are more likely to have, you know, complex candida or SIBO or other, other things where the microbacteria and funguses have just decided to have a party. And some of that's obviously just the way we eat. Some of it has to do with genetics, but uh, I mean, I think obviously there is just that, you know, awareness that the weaker, sicker we get, the more susceptible we are to pretty much everything. Mm. So just based on what you're saying there, I'm uh, left with uh, a lot more questions about the, the bigger scope of what mold is, but bringing it back to terms that I actually understand, mold for me happens either in my fridge um, or in my fridge. <laughs> I don't really know much else other than that. I mean, you were talking about the toxic mold syndrome in houses and that sort of stuff. Um, and I see the occasional fleck of green stuff on food or some sort of gray slimy stuff on a vegetable. Um, like, is it really that big of a concern? Uh, I think it is. You know, I mean, there are some people that are what we would call genetically susceptible. And I can get into that in a bit. Uh, but the toxins that mold secretes in its normal metabolic function are actually really, really quite harmful. Uh, and depending on your health, your genetics, and, and other things, it may be a mildly irritating exposure or it might suddenly completely change the course of your life. So you mentioned the fridge, which is, I think, is obviously a pretty, I don't know, well, for the bachelors listening, <laughs> a pretty interesting place for experiments in your vegetable drawer and stuff. But I think if anyone was to go around, you know, what we call the wet wall or where all the plumbing is in the back of your kitchen or in your bathroom or uh, other places that are constantly dealing with changing temperatures and uh, having pipes, uh, obviously, the changing temperatures is going to produce more or less condensation. That condensation gathers, and once it starts to puddle up, if it gets its, uh, uh, if the water gets anywhere where it's next to uh, any kind of thing that has a lot of cellulose or carbohydrate, and there is any kind of spores or mold in your house, which means, uh, oh yeah, you're on a planet, so the entire atmosphere is full of mold. Anyway, <clears throat> so. <laughs> How convenient. How convenient. <laughs> so yeah, uh, anywhere there where there's that kind of water buildup, you're going to see uh, mold. Now, depending on the kind of mold, it may or may not be super, super bad. Uh, depending on the volume and the number of uh, 
wet walls or areas in your house that have water uh, or if you're in an apartment building or how old your house is i mean in uh, the statistics are pretty bad. I mean, and again, most statistics I'm going to be using are going to come from the States just because for whatever reason they have the worst health statistics. So it always makes it easier to make a point. But right now in the U.S., I think it's 47% of dwellings have mold. Um, mold in the walls or mold just mold, in the just, air? Just, just in the general sense that there's there's enough, um, uh, perhaps you could call it lack of hygiene or lack of really good design or um, just age, things like that. Where there is enough water damage for the building to produce mold now the the statistics of how many of those buildings actually have enough mold or enough of the worst kinds of molds to be considered like super dangerous uh, i couldn't find any real uh, clear uh, numbers on that but it was kind of startling to realize that pretty much half of the buildings in an, in a modern developed country are potentially going to make people sicker hmm. well that's kind of freaking me out a little bit. I mean, before we came to the mics today, I was going to tell you the story of the mold that was in my house. Um, I'm in an upstairs, downstairs uh, apartment. Um, there's just the two suites. I'm on the main floor. Uh, my kitchen is directly over um, the bedroom below me. And the building is old enough that there's uh, cast iron pipes. Uh, and the cast iron pipe that was the, I guess, drain uh, pipe um, was leaking uh, into the wall, um, down into the bedroom below me. Um, and I didn't really find this out until, um, the maybe umpteenth million time that my sink backed up. I finally put some kind of caustic Drano stuff down there and, um, it worked. <laughs> it totally cleared the pipe. Uh, but it also cleared out all the junk and stuff that was around, um, stopping all of the water from just falling down through the wall because the angle of the pipe was, uh, it was basically level. It wasn't angled. So the, the water was sitting in the pipe and over the years, it just sort of sat there and being a cast iron pipe, it just sort of rusted through, um, and just dripped through the wall. So once I poured Drano down, there was this giant floosh <laughs> into the basement below. And I was like, oh, well, this was great. Two days later, I get a text message from my neighbor downstairs saying, Hey, there's some water on my wall. Are you uh, washing dishes or something up there? And he didn't even clue into it. Mm-hmm. Until he had somebody to go down there and look at it, and they, you know, the uh, contractor guy that he brought in sort of looked at it, and he took a couple of steps backward. He's like, "Oh my god," you know, like afraid of seeing the <laughs> the big bad wall fall and collapse all at that time. So for years, water had been dripping down um, behind that wall. Uh, so I'm sure there's some black, furry, gross, moldy things that have been growing in there. Um, so should I be concerned about that for myself if I'm upstairs and he's downstairs? I think it would be a good idea to make sure somebody cleans all that stuff up with a hazmat suit. Wow. Yeah. That bad, eh? Uh, and again, it just depends. So uh, we're kind of jumping ahead, but um, that's what we we'll just flow around with ideas. Uh, so if you look at the statistics um, in the sense of what mold illness is and... Again, I'm jumping ahead. We'll probably have to backtrack a bit. The real problem is something we call SEERS or chronic inflammatory reactive syndrome, right? So basically, uh, certain people, because of chronic un underlying autoimmune disease or other genetic factors, if they are triggered by any number of things, but in this case, it would be the mycotoxins that are produced by the bad mold. Uh, right now it's one in four people, about 25% of people that are just genetically really susceptible, 
uh, to those kind of uh, illness processes. So if you're a person with that kind of genetic background and you're exposed to something uh, as honestly directly uh, and rapidly harmful as the mycotoxins that mold produces, uh, again, one in four people is just going to suddenly get profoundly weird, reactive, inflammatory uh, illness. Hmm. And it's going to look like whatever other illnesses that they may have been diagnosed with. So you have arthritis and suddenly it gets, you know, uh, terrifyingly worse. You have colitis, Crohn's, um, uh, anything else that's dependent on inflammation, uh, most neurological problems, uh, psychological problems, depression, anxiety, things like that. Uh, although they're, you would, I wouldn't say they're caused by inflammation, but they're definitely driven by inflammation. So more inflammation, less neurotransmitters, more depression. So you could be on a mild antidepressant and then you move to some building that's got toxic mold and the my mycotoxins trigger the sears, all that chronic reactive inflammation. And your depression goes super, super deep or it turns into something else or your arthritis gets five times worse or whatever. And your clinician is going to naturally go, well, what's actually going on? Let's see. Well, you're, you have arthritis and you have depression. So something must be making your arthritis worse. So here's more naproxen, which is actually, you know, a really, you know, effective painkiller anti-inflammatory, although it's going to punch holes in your gut and make, you know, the future of arthritis work worse no matter what you do in the long term. Um, but that's unfortunately how these conditions just kind of go under the radar of, of most uh, medical practice because typically uh, if you are prone to that kind of inflammatory uh, immune system behavior, uh, it's likely that, you know, that kind of uh, medical pathology would be already gaining momentum in your life and having probably a diagnosis or two uh, before you're going to be triggered to Sears. Whereas other people, maybe the first thing that happens is they get toxic mold exposure. They have the genes, so they have that chronic inflammatory reaction. Uh, but it's super, uh, well, when we say global, in medicine we mean it can happen anywhere in the body. It can happen everywhere. It can happen in one place and then somewhere else as random as anything, you know, in the sense of how uh, cause and effect usually works in rational thought. You're just like, what the hell? I mean, this person has everything or they have everything on their left side or it's everything above their diaphragm or it's just below their knee. I don't know why, but that, that's where it's stuck for them. And uh, they have all these symptoms. And the tricky part is, you know, with inflammation, it produces so many um, symptoms and things you can find in blood tests and other uh, kind, kind of evaluations that the inflammation doesn't uh, tell you why it's there. It just tells you it's pissed off. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really hard to just look at a person and go, you know, it's probably mold when you're looking at all of the big red woolen lesions on their skin or something. And that's, I mean, you'd kind of have to be psychic to go from obvious emergent care to, I wonder if it was made by mold. Hmm. Well, is, is, um, so, I mean, just going back to your stats, your numbers, um, is mold, uh, easily recognized by most uh, healthcare professionals? Do they even know is that's the kind of thing? So here's the, sorry, I was going to swear. Um, so <laughs> here's the bleeped up part about this whole thing is um, the mycotoxins are, are very hard to track, you know, in the sense of standard medical care to track down that as the obvious uh, causative factor because the overwhelming amount of inflammation, tissue destruction, uh, what we would call humoral activity, which is, you know, that kind of swelling red itchy side of your immune system. I mean, your body's basically throwing up all over the place in, in the sense of what you can measure. 
So trying to like, oh, oh yeah, well, let's just look for something really small and unlikely like um, one of these volat uh, volatile organic uh, compounds and stuff like that that you may find from toxic exposure. Uh, you'd, you mean you'd have to be like the, what's that guy on TV? There's this Dr. House guy mm -hmm. who's like the super uh, diagnostician guy. Um, you know, so, I mean, you'd have to be talking to someone who's so deeply aware of, of um, that kind of exposure-driven illness, you know, because most people, like, most doctors just walk in and they see your symptom and they go, that's your problem. You know, you have red, big swollen patches all over your skin, dude. Let's fix that. I mean, they're, they're very few clinicians are actually trained to or even bother with the why because mm -hmm. that's not their job. They're there to stop the bleeding. Yeah. Huh. And uh, when I was researching for this podcast, it kind of blew me away because I had some pretty unexpected and glaring misconceptions about how this actually worked. It's a funny thing about the, I mean, the arrogance of being any kind of trained scientist is you know what you know. And then you realize, usually by research, that you didn't know a whole bunch of stuff. But the fun thing about knowledge is you can never know what you don't know. <laughs> so here I was going through all this stuff going like, wow, I, I had some pretty interesting misconceptions about this. And it's not something I, I specialize in. I probably see one or two people a year who they actually verbally say, I was exposed to toxic mold. Now I have all these problems. Right. And again, the mold thing isn't the thing. I mean, I've actually... I, and no, no, this is one of those weird things to say, but, uh, it's happened throughout the last 20 years, uh, working with the odd person that I see with toxic mold exposure, where they want me to treat the fungus. How do you mean? I mean, they're, they're determined to, to focus on the, the mindset that they're, uh, their problems are because there's a fungus living inside of them. And it's not that that's not true in some way. It's that the focus on trying to take antifungals and, and killing the bugs is usually just going to make the thing worse. Because, hmm. I mean, until you've cleaned up the inflammatory damage, um, that's all you can really do is just clean up the inflammation and then repair the damage. And if you don't repair the damage and kill the try and kill the mold, you know, you're basically just going to cause more damage. And it's hard not to make the the parallel analogy of what your house is going through is what your body's going through. Okay. All right. In the sense that the mold is trying to eat your house over a hundred years, but when you get exposed to mold, it isn't that the mold is trying to eat your body from the inside out. It's your immune system's reaction to the mycotoxin. That's now trying to eat your body from the inside out. And that's the part that's crazy making because we all want to just get rid of the bad puppy that's chewing on our elbow or whatever. And in some illnesses, there's just, it's not the puppy anymore. You know, it's some other process that, you know, I probably shouldn't have said puppy. Puppies are cute. Something bad. Little monster demon. Cats. Gremlin. Act. <laughs> some people like cats. I don't know what. <laughs> I'm just saying things to see if we're making sure the listeners are still listening. All right. There you go. Cats. Woo. Mirror. <laughs> so anyway, just, just to, to try and, you know, frame that. And one the one thing that I saw when I was researching this that actually blew me away was um, what we call black mold illness or toxic mold illness. It's actually a legal construct more than a medical diagnosis. Okay, you need to explain that. A legal construct. Yeah, because a lot of the people who are dealing with what they call toxic mold illness or black mold illness, um, they're trying to sue their landlord or somebody to get enough money to pay for all of the suffering they're going through. So they're trying to prove that the sick building syndrome has caused sick 
you know, Fred syndrome <laughs> and you're three years later in court trying to get, you know, your landlord or somebody to your city or somebody to pay you for all your suffering. Yeah. So anyway, as a legal construct, black mold illness has more credibility in terms of documentation in court records than it does have in medical records. That's fascinating. Yeah. Cause there's no way to prove, you know, conclusively that what's going on is absolutely 100% due to an exposure to mold. And how do you prove it was in this house? How do you prove it wasn't in your girlfriend's house or in your office behind that, you know, old air conditioning unit that's got drips going down the wall? Like, hmm. Weird, 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 weird. I mean, it's, it's just such a, um, this is an analogy or not the conversation and the subject matter is almost as pervasive and uh, scary as mold itself. It's the, the, the parallels are starting to creep me out. Actually, <laughs> okay, your house is eating itself. Your body's eating itself. Okay, it's a legal thing. Oh, wait a minute. It is mold. The entire universe is <gasps> mold. Is God? Mold's in charge. <laughs> now that might piss some people. <laughs> yeah, really. Well. I'm not. That, I'm not that happy with the idea. I just threw it out there for fun. Yeah. Let's stick with puppies and cats. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. So. Uh, I think we went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole or a sideways rabbit hole around uh, the, the topic of mold, just trying to identify what it is. Um, certainly, as I have experienced it in the past, uh, food mold is the one that I can see and that I know, and the stuff that actually grows in my uh, compost bin. You know, like I understand that. The toxic mold stuff, I might have some sort of sense of it, but um, where is it that you wanted to sort of uh, educate or direct people uh, today with the idea around mold? Uh, well, I'm Joan, just the way we usually do things is to be pretty comprehensive. So I think it would be good to just talk about mold as a, just a subject. Um, cause it's, I don't know, as a subject, it's, I think good to just go through it layer by layer cause it gets really complicated. Yeah, sure. So mold by itself is something that is ubiquitous in the world. Without it, we wouldn't actually have an ecology. We wouldn't have soil that works. So obviously, you know. Maybe I won't go back to where I was just with mold, but it's kind of important. Uh, but when it comes to human health, there are certain kinds of mold that um, we can recognize have pathomechanisms or uh, they're likely enough to derive some kind of reaction that we can actually see them as, you know, a part of conditions. Um, so we have what's called uh, aspergillus. Um, Alternaria, I think is the other one, Acrimonium, Cladosporum, a bunch of other really fun Latin words. The really scary one um, that we call black mold is called Stach, uh, Stachyboritis um, uh, Chartarum. Yeah, so mold, black mold in Latin. <laughs> but um, what's important, I think, just about blathering on with all those words is to recognize that um, there's a lot of different species and the species, uh, obviously, um, like to eat different things, but more importantly, the species poop out or excrete different kinds of, uh, off-gassing wastes and, and toxins and stuff. So the black mold one, which is, uh, in the top probably three or four for toxicity, uh, but because of its preference for dark, wet, uh, cool environments, uh, not too cool, but um, those kind of dark wet environments uh, in houses, it's the one that is known and has the most research with respect to actually triggering illness. Mm. And again, it's the mycotoxin that triggers a reaction of your immune system. Uh, and one in four people is super, super susceptible to that. Well, when you talked about that being the, uh, I guess, one of the top ones, um, how is it that... Uh, I can still eat something like blue cheese 
or scrape a piece of mold. I keep thinking of moldy cheese. I don't know why. I mean, that's just the, the easiest way to think of it right? for me in my fridge anyways. Mm-hmm. But is there, um, uh, like if that's, if black mold is one of the, the top ones, um, what's the stuff that's in blue cheese? Is that like one of the, the bottom ones or one of the easy ones or? I don't actually know. Um, sounds weird, but I have an aversion to blue cheese because it's got mold in it. So I don't really, I don't think I've ever eaten it. Okay. Um, but I've never looked into what, what molds in it. But uh, again, what's, what's, what, what I think is really important about the question you're asking is that it, it just sort of reflects that a perception that if I get mold on me or in me, that's going to make me potentially sick or maybe it's just yummy. Hmm. It isn't about the mold. It's about the mycotoxin the mold produces while it's making cheese <laughs> or, okay. you know, while it's eating your drywall or, uh, you know, tearing through whatever it is that's underneath your toilet in your bathroom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you, you brought that up because that, that's just a really great opportunity, again, to, to just bring people's attention to the fact that uh, your body's full of all kinds of yeasts and funguses and bacteria, uh, as we've talked about probably in almost every episode (laughs) in some way. Uh, So it isn't the critters that's the problem, it's the critter poo. Hmm. And uh, it's what our body does with the critter poo as well, right? Uh, More importantly, it's how your body responds to it, which is really about your immune system, which is really about your epigenetics, which is, you know, which corners against some populations to be so much more potentially reactive and damaged by a mycotoxin than, um, you know, the person next to you. Well, you, you said that a minute ago that uh, one in four people are um, really prone to uh, being affected by uh, black mold and toxic mold. But if that's such a, a high number, like there's two of us here, if there's two more people in the room mm. and there was mold in this building, one of them would be affected by it, right? I mean, at least, yeah. Uh, I'm just surprised that it's not more um, understood or focused on with uh, mainstream health. Yeah, well, again, it has to do with, well, in mainstream medicine is now called evidence-based medicine. Right. Right now, it's probably like 10, 10, 15 years that they've actually been saying that in medical schools. You now are learning evidence-based medicine. If you do not uh, practice based on the playbook, you know, here's the evidence, here's the treatment, you're going to lose your license. So here's your playbook, off you go. So with evidence-based medicine, it's really, really difficult to be able to prove a chain of evidence that says your present weird reactive inflammatory illness, which we're going to call something like arthritis because it looks exactly like arthritis, um, the doctor is going to look at you and say, good job, we know what it is, here's your medication, apparently potatoes aren't going to make you very happy, go away. Hmm. So there's, I mean, we don't have the little dashboard light on our forehead that says mycotoxin alert, mycotoxin alert. It just says I have chronic weird inflammatory reactions to everything. And that looks like 80% of chronic illness. So, you know, for most doctors, I think the expression is WTF, man, like, get out of here. <laughs> we, we got this nailed. Take your pill. Hmm. Right? But when it goes on for years and years and years and it keeps spreading around and it keeps getting more advanced and... You start seeing way, way more psychiatric, neurological, uh, you know, mental and emotional change, um, as well as the debilitating, you know, thing. And this was basically be exactly the same podcast if we were talking about Lyme disease. Right. Totally screwed up weird, you know, chemical reactions to uh, toxins and and irritants and uh, infectious agents that, you know, it's the reaction that's the freaky thing. Mm -hmm. And some people are way, way more prone to that reaction than others. Right. 
Well, let's talk about um, the uh, the people who aren't reactive versus the people that, that are. I mean, if there's um, some way of identifying that for themselves, is that something that you wanted to get into today about, you know, how can someone sort of self-identify? Well, right now, and this is goofy um, in the sense of what you would expect to see, uh, I'm planning on getting in, investing in this uh, protocol as soon as I can. Uh, I'm trying to remember the acronym VCS, uh, visual contrast sensitivity. So basically you would take, um, so I'm trying to think of a quick image. So the, there's these things that used to hold in front of your eye, that little thing you'd hold in front of your eyes and then you would twist it and it would make it look like a cartoon was happening. Okay. So it's kind of like that where you would hold something in front of your eyes then you'd be looking through little, you know, peeper things. But you're going to be looking at what are going to look like paint palette cards. Right. If you were going to paint your bedroom and you go to the hardware store, there's thousands of car colored little blotches that help you pick your color. But what this thing does is it actually asks you to see if you can tell uh, a visual contrast to different, different color gradients. So you're looking at cards and there's a gradient of colors. And if you can tell at a certain level of sensitivity, then the person doing the test would chart that. Okay, you can tell gross color difference. And then the, the differences get more and more subtle. So as your visual contrast sensitivity um, um, is being tested, depending on how accurate you can see the difference in these color gradients, uh, that becomes your score, right? And that basically tests um, the degree to which neurological inflammation is actually affecting your brain. And that's a marker for what then? Inflammation affecting your brain. Okay, but if... So I'm looking at these things. Yep. I can discern these things. Yep. I get a score. Inflammation of the brain is pointing you towards what, though? So again, the biggest scary thing with toxic mold exposure is the inflammatory reaction or chronic inflammatory oh, okay. reactive syndrome. So one of the only ways we can tell that there's chronic reactive inflammation is to read the degree of neurological uh, disarray due to that degree of chronic inflammation. And that's why I think it's just sort of a fascinating thing that we're looking at toxic mold exposure. And the only way we can be more precise, surprisingly, is measuring the degree of a neurological damage uh, through inflammation. And right now, the best way we can do that is through uh, visual uh, color sensitivity. Yeah, wow, that's very interesting. And so um, is that uh, an indication? What's the question here? If, if, if you're measuring the inflammation in my brain, is that an indication of toxicity um, at a certain level that it's developed in my body? Or is that like a general marker for, uh, for everything? And again, great question. <laughs> it brings us to the, the, the weird corner of this is we're not measuring for toxicity. We're measuring for the volume and degree of damage due to chronic inflammation, which is triggered by the mycotoxin. Right. So if there's a higher degree of uh, inflammation, that means there's a, um, like I'm picturing myself as a, a mold thermometer where my feet are like zero for mold and the top of my head is 100%. And if there's uh, a high degree of inflammation, then the little moldometer is going to be closer to the top of my head than it is to my feet. That works. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Huh. 
<laughs> I'm doing a happy dance I was here, just folks. Say, and there, uh, for those who can't see, Anthony's doing a really cool little jerky happy dance over there. <laughs> well, it's it, you know, for, for, for all the times that we talk, there's times when I'm actually trying to get it for my sake so yeah. that I know that the people listening will actually get it. And this is one of those times where I was like, yeah, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if there's any topic that deserves a happy dance, it's Toxic Mold because... Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this, and, and I'll bring it up again. Besides testing for what are called volatile organic compounds, uh, which is not something you're going to find in most uh, lab testing opportunities, the best we've got right now is testing that color sensitivity. And again, we're just trying to get a sense if this person's complaining of, you know, uh, chronic complex inflammatory conditions that trigger back to what may be a mold exposure or we don't really know. Um, testing the, the visual contrast is right now, again, just, you know, how, how bad is it in there? Hmm. And it occurs to me that this would be a great chance to just bring up a Chinese medicine way of looking at this. Yeah. So again, Chinese medicine, 5,000 year tradition, but didn't bother with microscopes. So a lot of things are described in kind of a affirmational sense. You know, this is how nature works. This is what we can see with our eyes. This is what we can um, assess through intuition or whatever. Uh, so the way Chinese medicine talks about things is going to seem relatively vague <laughs> compared to some of the stuff we can often get into with say lab tests, but there's a perception in Chinese medicine. Um, we call the, the three treasures or shan, qi, and qing. Uh, shan would be like conscious awareness. Qi would be a description of how everything is shared and kind of keeps moving in the body. And Qing would be an expression of um, your basic organic viability or your ability to store nutrients or for all your cells to have uh, enough mojo to keep going for as long as they can. And the way it's described in the classics is the, what we call Qing or this sort of, you know, yummy, um, I don't know, it's often imaged as, as kind of like this super potent elixir of of like a liquid that is uh, essential for health, but can be stored like in your bone marrow or in your brain, uh, you know, in the sense of like a tissue bank account or something. Although the noun part of it isn't really that important in Chinese medicine. But when you're looking at uh, toxic uh, mold exposure, chronic inflammation, and you decide that we're going to look at um, the Qing as the wax of a candle and the inflammation as how many wicks are burning on your candle. So if you're having chronic over a long period of time reactive, very intense uh, inflammatory syndrome, um, you're basically lighting your candle at both ends and probably the middle. So the rate at which your body burns through what we call qing or your body's bank account of nutrients and fats and other things uh, is more rapid. So not only are you looking at patients with chronic reactive inflammation and all of the symptomology that goes with that, you're typically also looking at people who are becoming neurologically and tissue depleted. Hmm. Uh, not only in the sense of neurotransmitter reserve or if you have enough B12 in your system, but uh, that chronic inflammation is is driving your immune system to be very prolific. So now your bone marrow is busy making immune system cells. And that inflammation is your body attacking your body because it's being triggered by a mycotoxin. It's not like your, you know, your little finger is on, on fire because you got bit by a snake. Your entire body head to toe as the moldometer recently invented by Anthony Sana <laughs> on Fusion Health Radio <laughs> would, would show you, um, you know, the more, the, the longer the wax is burning, the, the less of you is left. And if you think of your brain as obviously the sea of Qing or the place in which uh, a person with a lot of um, 
vital potential. You just assume they'd have bright, clear eyes and really, really quick wits, and they'd be pretty, you know, uh, available energetically and, and uh, emotionally and stuff like that. Whereas somebody who's obviously depleted, their batteries are low, you're going to expect the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. So just as a kind of quick Chinese medicine little analogy there. Wow. Um, I like the Chinese medicine analogies because they're, um, well, for lack of a better word, they're more everyday language, right? They're just more available for me. Um, and if I've got uh, this mold thing happening for me personally, um, I, I'm, I'm still thinking about the situation that's actually going on in my house and that sort of stuff. Uh, is that anything that you wanted to talk about today, about how to actually deal with uh, mold in our everyday environments? Uh, yeah, so obviously getting the hell out of there would be step one if you're a person who's going, I'm reacting to something in my house. Sure. I go home, I feel worse. I get up, you know, I feel worse. I leave, I feel better. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes, and that's where I think the, the reason why it's a legal issue is a lot of people, when they discover that their, you know, their apartment is full of mold or whatever, now they suddenly need to find a new place to live and the landlord is going, you owe me rent. <laughs> right. And the person saying, you owe me a left arm because I'm dying. Ah. Uh, or, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, obviously getting out of the place, uh, is super important. Uh, when you talk to the people who are really big on the remediation process, I mean, these people, half of them just say, burn it down, just start from scratch. Cause well, it's going to cost you so much more money to tear the inside of your house apart and remove everything. Right. We're talking carpets, floorboards, all the drywall. You have to basically take a, a kind of chemical spray that's going to attack the mold. And then some guys who are really good at this, they even use this weird, super intense uh, combination of uh, some stuff they spray on the surfaces of wood. And then they use some kind of super ultraviolet light or something like that that is also supposedly going to just eradicate even more of this stuff. So imagine taking your house, gutting the entire inside of your house, bathing your entire there's all the studs and inner in uh, infrastructure of your house. Every pipe, every, f you know, fitting, everything has to be basically uh, ripped down to the nails, bathed in toxins, maybe irradiated with some kind of fancy flashlight. <laughs> and then you have to rebuild the entire house back to insulation, to drywall, to carpets, to flooring, to paint, to, to whatever. And that's, I mean, that's like, you know, you're paying people to tear apart a house and you're paying people to build a house. So a lot of people just say, why don't you just sort of like burn the place down and then we'll just clean it up, you know, with a shovel and then start from scratch. But obviously that's not environmentally that good of an idea to start burning houses down. But it's just to give anyone that kind of common sense sort of pause, which is you have to start from scratch. I mean, that building would have to be taken apart to the studs. Right. And, and, so, and then basically treated as if it was, you know, an, an infected body and then rebuilt if it could be. As much as I don't want to ask this question because it pertains to the house that I'm living in, <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyways. The space that's actually downstairs. Um, so as I, as I mentioned, the water damage was probably in the wall, the mm -hmm. outside wall, um, just below my kitchen uh, sink. Um, does that mean that it would have like just kept on growing around the whole uh, space downstairs beyond just that wall? Uh, could be. I mean, the temperature is really specific. Uh, mold really likes things about, you know, 65 to 72, hmm. you know, which is strangely enough are kind of, uh, it's just sort of a weird, maybe, um, coincidence, but for whatever reason, our standard temperature for dwellings is 72 degrees. 
Right. And anything over 68 degrees in the sense of leftover food on your counter is going to go bad faster from 68 to 69 to 71 and 2. But at 72, it's like the perfect temperature for crap to grow. So for whatever reason, humans seem to really like the temperature of crap growing. <laughs> so just with respect to your... your Today on the Home and Garden Show, we're talking about the perfect temperature <laughs> to keep crap growing in your kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, if that part of the dwelling you're in is colder than that, then the, any mold that may be there would be less. And again, if, if, if your wet wall of your building is up against... Um, uh, the outside of the house or maybe against something that could be a bit of a heat sink or a, a cold sink in the sense of a chimney or something, the colder it is outside, the colder that uh, thermal mass would be and the longer it would uh, keep that temperature of that part of the building lower. Mm-hmm. Right. So it really just depends on temperature. But again, as I futilely tried to read off a thousand Latin names from old <laughs> a little while ago, it really depends on the species because there's a lot of mold that, like you said, it's stuff in your kitchen. I mean, you stuff on a, a puff ball when you're hiking with friends and everyone's breathing it in and throwing them at each other because they think it's funny. Uh, not a great idea, but those, those kind of molds aren't going to take you out. Right. It's, it's the really scary uh, kinds of mold that produce the really scary kind of mycotoxins that are the ones that cause people to get sick. Well, this happened uh, two years ago. And I have a belief that the problem was probably there. And I've been in this space for four years. It's probably been there since I don't know when, Mm -hmm. uh, judging by the uh, piece of rusty pipe that they pulled out. That just didn't happen overnight. Um, But it just makes me think that, uh, I don't know, makes me believe, makes me want to believe that the problem downstairs isn't really severe. Uh, or as severe as it could be, just because uh, the fellow that's living downstairs just lives there for, I think, almost a decade. Um, And he doesn't really present with a whole lot of health issues. Not that I'm aware of anyways. I never hear him complaining about stuff. So um, I'm going to just touch some wood here that I've got cheese mold in the walls. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's my head. Stop doing that. Yeah. (laughs) Ow, ow. Um, Okay, so uh, we're talking about uh, mold walls, uh, throwing around puff balls, things being kind of inert, measuring mold. Uh, where, what are we up to next? Uh, well, I think it's good to just sort of step back and look at the, I guess, the context of the conversation, which is there are, you know, life forms around us, some of them relatively benign, some of them the opposite of benign in the sense that they can cause a lot of problems, but it's actually the biotoxins that they create that are going to, you know, create a a reaction in humans. Having said that, you know, black mold may be the worst one that we see uh, in frontline healthcare, but there's a lot of other things in in the ecology that humans live in that also produce biotoxins. So I would say it's, you know, the the conversation isn't really that one-sided. uh, just around one species or something like that. Uh, it is, I think, just a, a very, very valuable thing for people to be aware that you know the most important thing is to support uh, the ground of the body. You know, to keep yourself as healthy as possible. Uh, I mean, obviously, if it's a chronic reactive inflammatory thing that the mold is going to instigate, then doing everything you can to reduce inflammation with respect to diet, lifestyle, and other choices is going to give you the most um, overall time to clear up the process getting that kind of um a visual contrast thing uh as an assessment of actual damage is 
pretty valuable thing. I think it's maybe 50 or 60 bucks to have someone, you know, work you through that. But at least then you have, uh, I guess a score, you know, I've got a, a mm-hmm. sense of this is, this is where I'm going to be starting with this. And it's, you know, pretty much really that bad. And, and so, sorry, just to be clear, is there an official name for that sort of diagnostic test? The visual contrast sensitivity test, VCS, uh, you know, if you are going to be looking for, um, uh, again, those uh, volatile organic compounds, that's something that I don't really know anyone who's um, like, well, actually there's a guy, I think his name's Richie Schumacher. He's in the States. He's, uh, I believe he was an MD, but now he's just one of those guys who's just researching and writing about mold illness. And uh, I think he is the guy who came up with that visual contrast thing. Uh, and he'd probably be the person to talk to about getting those uh, volatile organic compounds tested because uh, he's sort of the thought leader on mm-hmm. how to figure this stuff out. Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm in any way an expert on toxic mold and illness. I've seen, like I said, maybe one or two a year where uh, my whole thing is just let's support your uh, well-being. Let's turn off the autoimmune process if it is triggered. Let's really keep a close eye on your whole medical history so we're not putting everything in the bucket of toxic mold uh, exposure because... Um, and I want to be careful with how I say this, so uh, I am prefacing this to the listener. Give me a minute to finish what I'm going to say before you throw your iPod at the wall or something like that. Um, so fibromyalgia back in the 80s and 90s was this sort of catch uh, uh, catchment sort of uh, corral for people who had chronic illness, chronic pain, and uh, no one could figure out why they were, you know, that weak, sick, tired, or in pain. So it became this sort of catch diagnosis. And for a while, you know, it was, there was a lot of eye rolling going on in the medical community, which is, oh, yeah, right, you must have fibromyalgia, the new thing that everyone gets, and it's probably in your head, so here, take an antidepressant. And that's still the standard of care for fibromyalgia is take some amitriptyline or, you know, some Effexor or something like that. So the reason I brought up fibromyalgia is that for, you know, maybe a decade or two, it was considered to be the kind of lame diagnosis that if you had fibromyalgia from a medical standpoint, you were probably just making it up and it was probably just in your head, Hmm. right? And then they came up with sort of a, (laughs) I don't know, I wouldn't call it the most accurate diagnosis, but uh, if you react to a certain number of trigger points on your body under pressure from your doctor, that would be the positive diagnosis for fibromyalgia, which is if I push on a bunch of places and it hurts, you must have fibromyalgia, which is... uh, Can I say it for you? Please. It just sounds ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm thinking of the, the joke, doctor, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Then don't do that. <laughs> yeah, aren't doctors smart? Anyway, so the reason why we're both looking at each other with that kind of, now what do we say kind of look, uh, is that presently toxic mold is in the same status that fibromyalgia was 30 years ago, which is, oh, right, the eye rolling begins when you walk into a, a doctor's office and say, doc, I think I've got toxic mold exposure. One, most people have no idea how to test for it. Uh, again, fibromyalgia is still the main test is, does it hurt if I push on this, this chronic sore muscle, <laughs> right? And I'm not saying that there's anything, I mean, I treat fibromyalgia pretty much every day, so I'm not saying it isn't uh, an illness. I'm just saying we, we should probably give it a new name and have some tests that actually can prove that it's that particular thing that's producing what we call fibromyalgia, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're on the precipice of having a much clearer sense of how that actually works in the body. Right now, we're just at the beginning of toxic mold, 
Right. And that's where fibromyalgia was maybe in the 80s and 90s. So it's going to take probably another decade before um, enough people that are both frontline caregivers and also researchers um, coming up with other diagnostic avenues and or treatment modalities and stuff like that. Because if there was, um, and, and I'm saying this with some humor, I think, if there was somebody out there who had like the, you know, one, two, three, you know, perfect storm treatment for black mold, I think I would have found it in the last week of researching mold illness. <laughs> but apparently this is one of those ones you just don't get the magic pill for. Right. I mean, and we when we talk about chronic reactive inflammatory syndrome, that's there's a lot of different ways the body can get jammed up with inflammation. So when you're doing, say, lab tests, blood tests, and things like that, uh, you can't just have the one test for black mold kind of inflammation because epigenetically a person can produce probably nine different kinds of inflammatory-driven kind of syndromes that still wouldn't look exactly like a disease that's already in the books. So again, I'm just saying we're, we're in a situation where diagnosing it is not really, you know, we're at the fibromyalgia level. Um, treating it, same thing, which is, and we talked about this last time, you know, you have to basically door number one, door number two. Door number one is fix everything. Door number two is do some lab testing and figure out what's broken and then fix everything. <laughs> we're, we're, we're back to the door, the door solution. <laughs> the door solution. But yeah, I mean, if I feel bad that if someone was listening to this 45 minutes of their life go by and go, he didn't tell me what to do. I want to know what to do. Uh, I'll give you some pointers, but there's no magic bullet for toxic mold. Sorry. Hmm. And uh, for a minute there, I thought you were going to make the uh, connection between fibromyalgia being toxic mold um, syndrome. Could be. Really? Well, I mean, fibromyalgia being a pain-specific, uh, what's called humorally mediated uh, condition in the sense that the part of your immune system that's freaking out has got to do with informational substances that tell your immune system what's going on. And some of those substances include the message of pain. Right. So if you had Sears or chronic inflammatory reactive syndrome, it could look very much like fibromyalgia if you had a very specific habit of Im immune system reactions and inflammation, which again, which would be driven epigenetically. So yeah, we're just going to keep having to go back to everyone's an individual and how your body is going to light its candle on fire at both ends might be a bit unique to you. So as, as yeah, we, I mean, we're, back to the oh yeah we can see how melted your brain is if you look at some funny cards with pictures on it uh but that's that's basically well it's gotten that bad now your brain isn't working <laughs> <laughs> so that that's where our testing is for for mold exposure is how, how much damage has your brain actually taken mm -hmm. and i mean sorry to be the guy to say that but if you're out there and you're a researcher get on it man <laughs> <laughs> oh. If you, if you got more information than Michael, please email him. <laughs> yeah, please. If, you, if you did find the magic website on how to like fix all of this stuff, uh, let me know. Yeah. So what uh, what do you know about uh, treating or dealing with toxic uh, syndrome? Besides getting out of the house, if you can't get out of the building that you're in, um, then you're going to have to remediate as much of the building as you can. And remediation basically just means people come in there and make a bit of a mess or a hell of a mess and then get as much of the uh, damaged material out of the place and then you have to treat the environment uh, itself so say if you're you know you just find a little bit of mold along the windowsill of your basement which is the most common place you're going to see it or along the you know the where the wall meets the floor especially if the person put put, put the drywall sheet right up against the floor because that's the fastest way to make mold 
uh, just in case you're a drywaller and you didn't know you're supposed to keep everything three quarters of an inch off of the concrete, uh, FYI. <laughs> yeah, I used to do that for a job. I was just going to say, I'm looking <laughs> on the wall here for that diploma. Yeah. yeah, you don't get a diploma to do drywall. You just get a really congested chest. <laughs> Um, so if you see that in your house, so then you could get any number of the mildew, uh, kind of no damp treatments. This is f funny, but, um, I can't remember the name of the product, but if you happen to know anybody in the, um, um, gardening in your basement industry, <laughs> uh, you, soon you, it'll be legal in Canada. Hint, hint. <laughs> you, you, you can say it, Michael. It's a podcast. It's We're cannabis. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so the people who grow cannabis indoors, uh, often have to deal with, uh, mold and funguses that are actually attacking the plants, you mm -hmm. know, and obviously that's just how you, you know, intelligently you build your grow up or not. Uh, but if you go to the stores that supply people who do those kind of gardens, they have the stuff that's, uh, um, organic ish, but you can actually paint it onto the stalk of your cannabis plants to kill the mold and fungus that's going to eventually kill your plant, but it'll kill the mold and it won't damage your plant. So those kind of compounds that basically are chemically designed to attack, um, the way mildew grows, you could just put that along your basement window or along the, where the drywall shouldn't be against your concrete or whatever. Um, getting the temperature down, getting the humidity down, uh, obviously are super important. Um, a lot of, uh, um, yeah, really bright, hot lights, uh, also can interfere with it. I, I don't know the exact device that some of the mold people are, uh, remediation people are using, but, uh, basically it's like a super powered flashlight that has the, you know, the frequency of light or whatever that's going to irritate the mold the most. So hang on a second there. When you said the difference in temperature, uh, making something really cold, mm -hmm. um, is it possible to actually kill mold then if it gets cold enough? Funny thing, you know, uh, I, I, I made the joke about maybe mold being a very great being, but apparently some molds can travel through interstellar space because they can't die. Really? Yeah. You, you mean you can mechanically destroy the structure of living mold, but in the sense of killing it the way you can kill a person with a name it doesn't really work that way it just retreats into the smallest possible corner that biological life will allow it to hide and if it's conditions to grow come back it'll grow and if it's conditions to not grow go come up then it won't grow but you could basically say mold is probably older than the universe just to be funny wow <laughs> <laughs> just just because it's fun to say that's pretty cool i almost see hollywood latching onto the idea of mold being the next you know, Jason or something like that <laughs> coming back. Well, it's already, I think that's what happened to Jason is he got Sears. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he, he couldn't tell the visual thing, you know, got really, the headaches got bad. And he just started chopping people up. <laughs> but it was the mold. There's probably more truth to that than not. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, so obviously HEPA filters, everything else that you can use to keep uh, the air quality as, as good as possible. Um, but I mean, honestly, I think if, if you're a person who believes that you have uh, that chronic reactive inflammation due to mold or maybe you have previous illness and you moved into a place that had mold and now you're like five times worse than you were before you moved in you got to get out of there you gotta you mm -hmm. just figure that out and so um i think you might have already addressed this but um let's say for example again using my sorry example of the place downstairs should my neighbor decide to move out because he was sick from whatever it was was going down there uh, and somebody else moved in and the place wasn't cleaned up, 
uh, would they automatically get sick? Depends on, well, if they're one of the one in four. The one in four. So if the person moving into your basement was one of the uh, relatively unlucky, you know, one in four who uh, is likely to have a Sears-like reaction to a mycotoxin, then that would be relevant to the person moving into your basement. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but there's uh, people who have a genetic um, uh, anomaly. Uh, I remember the name here. It's HLA uh, human leukocyte antigens. So uh, I think it's 2% of people uh, have that. Um, i trying to remember if that's exactly right. A small percentage? Would that be a safer way to say it? Uh, well, yeah, it's a small, small amount of people, but people who have that anomaly can't fight off mycotoxins in, in nearly as effective a way uh, as everybody else on the planet. Sorry, they can't? They can't. Right. So the degree of depth and damage that a person can experience from that kind of exposure for some people can be um, like terrible. Like, I mean, if you're listening to this and you want to get a... Um, maybe a more tangible touching kind of thing. Uh, Dave Asprey, the guy who kind of built the Bulletproof brand, um, he did that based on the mycotoxins uh, in coffee beans hmm. and the molds that he found in certain coffee and stuff like that. So he made his big, you know, you know, claim to fame selling coffee that was mycotoxin free. Anyway, so he made a movie called Moldy because mold illness was a big part of his story in the sense of how him and his family went from, you know, wherever people start in life to whatever it is that happens when you become an entrepreneur podcaster that wants to save the world. So I'm not sure how I got here, but there's this thing that happens to people that makes you <laughs> want to do this stuff. <laughs> uh, probably something like mold. And uh, yeah, so Dave, anyway, he's got this this big thing going on and he made this movie. And when you watch the people on that film talk about what it was like to go from, you know, I was, I had a bit of this, I had a bit of that. Then I moved to this new job, blah, blah. And then, you know, within days to weeks to months, I went from, you know, happy rugby player, you know, with, you know, three girlfriends or something just to make a funny, vigorous, healthy looking person seem real. Uh, to a person who's crawling around on the floor trying to remember their name, where their car keys are, and why they care because they're suicidally depressed. Wow. Right. And again, th those are those people that uh, either are having such a profound reaction to the mycotoxin in terms of inflammation that the inflammation is destroying their health, and or they're one of the people with that uh, HLA uh, uh, genetic anomaly where they can't fight off the, the the mycotoxin directly, and the mycotoxin is just tearing through their tissues and membranes, and you know causing more toxic problems because your body can't catch it. So I mean, it's the it's just one of those things. I mean, it's kind of you're you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, your immune system reacts. It's the reaction that takes you out. You don't react because you're one of the two percent that the toxin takes you out. So yeah. So again, if you're listening and you want to watch something that gives you some more uh, you know, kind of human stories, you know, about people going through this. It's, it's terrifying to see what this stuff can do to people like terrifying. Yeah. Sounds fascinating in a kind of, um, uh, horror movie kind of way. That, that was, I'm glad you said that cause I was going to just say, it's like a horror movie, man. <laughs> Don't go there. So in terms of, uh, uh, dealing with things and remediation, I mean, he's, you're, you're still on the whole attack of, um, either getting out of the space or, um, uh, cleaning up the space. Um, do you have kind of ideas of what people can do for themselves? So again, the, the main thing would be just mediating uh, whichever way your immune system is freaking out. So 
uh, getting some tests to see where your inflammatory markers would be a good idea. Uh, the main one would be like CRP, um, um, C-reactive protein, uh, just in the sense of seeing how intense inflammation is. Uh, obviously, symptomatically, each person is going to have a, you know their um, bucket list or maybe the wrong kind of list. What list would it be? Grocery list, shopping list, shopping list, shopping list of symptoms. Um, so that's you know subjectively uh, going to confirm some aspects of it. Um, but I think obviously either an anti-inflammatory diet all the way to an autoimmune diet. Um, I definitely would recommend immune modulation, which would be things like vitamin D and you know plant-based anti-inflammatories. Uh, if you have a cannabis uh, available to you and wherever you live, uh, the CBD uh, alkaloid, which is non-psychoactive, uh, but has profound uh, immune-mediating uh, benefits. But you have to take it basically every eight hours with vitamin D and something like alpha-lipoic acid to basically steer your immune system away from that. But uh, I would definitely start with that. And um, uh, a lot of our listeners are in the States. So if you're in the States, some places can get CBD to you. Uh, some clinics will. I mean, they, they just shifted it over, I think, to a Schedule 1 drug for some reason since Mr. Orangehead took over. Uh, but um, I, I know people that in, in the health industry in the U.S. that actually promote the use of CBD, so I'm not sure exactly where you're, where it is available there, but I know in Canada you can have it mailed to your door. Yeah, I think that's the bigger industry here is mail over, mm. right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so that would be a good idea. Um I think going on uh, probably about a five-month super-focused um, regimen of things like uh, meditation, you know, exercise, sleep hygiene, proper hydration, uh, all of that. Because you know, say say you find you or you say for example someone goes downstairs and they clean up that mold, and now you're living in a place that doesn't have that risk. Uh, but let's say you're symptomatically feeling like there's something going on here that that. Um, compels you to want to sort it out. The reason why I would say five months is that it takes at least 120 days, you know, four months for the memory B cells or the more active part of your immune system to kind of settle down a little bit. So giving yourself that four or five months, maybe while you're getting through the initial remediation process of, of where you live, um, that would be the shortest period of time that I could imagine actually trying to resolve that part of the condition. Because once your immune system gets triggered, you know, it's just going to stay at that level of trigger uh, as long as you're still uh, engaging in any behavior that has a, a trigger. So although the mycotoxin might be the, the original event uh, that started, say, a serious-like reaction, uh, if you moved or had your house remediated and then you're still there or you, you know, uh, so if you're, again, if you're in a new place or something like that, or your, your place has been cleaned out, um, there still may be other triggers in your diet. There may be other triggers in your, you know, habit and lifestyle that now that your immune system has been sort of uh, compelled to DEFCON 4 or whatever action movie analogy you could <laughs> come up with. The one, the one where the sirens and the lights go off. Yeah, yeah, it's really bad. Zombies everywhere. Um, once your body's immune system gets triggered to that, any trigger will keep it uh, at a high level of, of reactivity. Mm -hmm. So you could get out of your moldy house, but if you're still eating, I don't know, wheat or something like that, and for whatever reason your immune system is pissed off at wheat, uh, it's just going to keep propelling that process. So I would say for most people who want to clear off the toxic mold thing is treat yourself as if you're recovering from a complex autoimmune condition. 
you know, obviously getting rid of all of the triggers possible, not just the mold, are going to be important uh, to get your immune system to feel like it's, I don't know, surrounded by friends instead of, you know, little bitey, naughty monsters. Yeah, with... Uh... Gremlins. Sharp, pointy forks and knives and all <laughs> kinds of things. Uh, I think this might be a good uh, opportunity to um, uh, plug your book. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, when you when you talk about uh, taking care of uh, one's uh, health and body and internally and doing something anti-inflammatory, um, your version of how to cook food as well as how to um, eat food and what to cook and all this sort of stuff uh, comes to mind. Um, do you want to give folks a quick synopsis of what uh, your book is all about? Uh, so it's called Returning to an Ancestral Diet. I think it's about 600 pages. Um, no, that's not all high-tech uh, mumbo-jumbo. There's mostly recipes in there. Yeah, so the first 100 pages is basically Nutritional Medicine 101, Evolutionary Medicine 101, and then there's 500 recipes from around the world. Yeah, and yeah. 500 uh, delicious, easy to prepare, I would say. Um, some of them are, some of them aren't. I mean, when I actually wrote that book, part of it was... Um, just because my patients kept saying, I want recipes, damn it. <laughs> uh, but what do I eat? What do I eat? <laughs> yeah. But also it was just to give uh, people that, um, you know, basic framework around uh, nutrition. But when I started actually writing the book, I was at the same time, you know, kind of just coming up to the realization that I'd, I'd come to a, um, a weird negotiation with myself where I had just come to like stubbornly eat whatever it is that was you know, I could eat because I have to be careful with what I eat. Uh, but in terms of girlfriends and my kid and other people in my life over years eventually kind of inspired me to go, maybe I should make more than like three kinds of stew and some scrambled eggs for food. <laughs> so this was several years ago, but I decided to actually study to be a, a really good cook. And a big part of that book is actually trying to inspire people to fall back in love with cooking and uh, with cuisine and with flavor profiles and with how to make a really good sauce or how to make a classic uh, coco vin or something. Uh, so it went from kind of a how to make, you know, healthy food not suck to, well, why not become a gourmet chef? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the net result is um, you'll be eating better. And we all know what that does. <laughs> Fixes everything on the inside better. Yeah. Uh, and everything on the inside uh, between your your navel and your nipples and between your ears too, I think. Um, eating cleaner and greener, uh, I know for me, has certainly uh, improved my uh, happiness quotient by a huge factor. So uh, thanks for that. Okay. <laughs> commercial's done. Back to, back to the story of mold. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Uh, where can they get the book? Uh, you could get the book on my website, integrativehealthsolutions.ca. Uh, and once I've finished haggling with the IRS, which I'm still working out, uh, it'll be available on Amazon and everywhere else. Sounds good. Okay. Now we're back to mold. Okay. Uh, we were talking about how um, um, you had just said uh, somebody with, uh, I guess, is that how you say it? Toxic mold syndrome would actually want to treat themselves as if they've had some severe autoimmune disease. Uh, that's where I'd start. Um, and again, my, my thinking is just based on, um, it's not always, you're going to be less successful with these kind of conditions when you focus on just one trigger. You're going to be more successful when you focus on the reaction to any trigger, because that's what you're dealing with is the reaction, not the trigger. Mm -hmm. So I get that, you know, we're all pretty compelled to try and be uh, you know, laser focused on whatever we think is the most important thing to solve our particular issue. But in some cases, especially things like mold and Lyme and stuff, 
you're dealing with something that there isn't enough um, really hard statistical knowledge to, to run with anything more than focus on the reaction. Right. Well, um, this may sound kind of flip, but it just makes me think that um, if you if one has uh, some kind of issue and they're not entirely clear and they haven't really got any kind of evidence, um, they could still do themselves a huge favor by improving their diet uh, and their lifestyle anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the focus of everything we talk about on the, on the podcast as it is. Yeah. So I think if you're taking this uh, to heart and going, well, maybe that's my thing is toxic mold, uh, I would get a hold of uh, or track down Rich, uh, I think it's Richie Schumacher, his website. I don't have it in front of me, but he's got a pretty interesting, I think it's 10, 12, 14 step by step protocol for, for toxic mold. I haven't looked into it enough to really decide whether or not that's the way I would go. Um, He's also got a, some kind of evaluation uh, criteria test. I think it's based on a questionnaire, but um, in terms of trying to organize yourself specifically more around the toxic mold side of things, he's got the most information and the most uh, accessible things that you could use, right? Um, otherwise, you know, you talk to most clinicians, they're going to basically say, I have no idea. Uh, you know, focus on the inflammation. And I think that's a good idea to begin with, but the inflammation is produced by an immune system trigger. And again, for most people, it's a genetic epigenetic process. So although, you know, we could say, oh, too bad you're one of the one in four people that has this problem. Um, I would step back and say, okay, so you're one of the people on the planet who has a highly reactive immune system. So again, focus on that, not on, you know, you're one of the one in four people or you're one of the two percent right yeah well and again it comes back to um i think the my understanding of who our listeners are they're people who are a little bit more proactive in terms of uh, dealing with their health uh, they're not necessarily going to their uh, doctor in a lab coat and taking their advice um, verbatim uh, they're actually health seekers in some way so uh, perhaps um, that approach of actually dealing with uh, inflammation in the body. I mean, that's kind of a, I'm not the doctor here. That's kind of a general thing that actually happens with us anyways. doesn't matter what's going on. Is that true? Uh, well, I mean, inflammation is a part of things and uh, it actually has a lot of um, kind of mediating positives, you know, around tissue repair too. So it's not like inflammation is evil, but when you have a reactive kind of inflammation that's running uh, such an expensive organic process that it's actually wasting away your tissue and, and changing fundamentally the way your metabolism works. That's something completely different than normal inflammation. Right. And uh, I just want to make sure that I get to put this out there because hopefully there's clinicians listening, there's researchers listening, as well as people that are just interested in health. But um, until we have a thousand people like Chris Kresser, you know, um, I put myself in that uh group of people too that are clinicians who are also researchers who are also uh, teaching clinicians you know we have a pretty interesting role in the world um, in the sense of maybe leading the direction in which the inquiry of healthcare goes because now we have people that are doing more integrative medicine uh, Chinese medicine functional medicine Western medicine all these other things and it's it's kind of a beautiful sort of a fight got goosebumps just thinking about it a uh, time we're in where People that can read books can talk to each other online and make each other smarter and then publish stuff, even if it's just through a blog or a podcast or a podcast to uh, keep the benchmark uh, of 
you know, our collective knowledge and skill set and protocols, it just keeps, you know, we're just going to keep raising each other up with this. But the things, the people that are going to make that thing happen are the clinicians who also take it upon themselves to be researchers. And I mean, that's actually like, you know, for whatever reason, something I just feel like I want to say over and over and over again. That's the thing that's changing medicine. Mm-hmm. It is people who are on the front line going, I am profoundly dissatisfied with my training. Mm-hmm. I will get more training. I will start training people in the training that I'm now training myself in because there's no other training. Because until you know, we effectively have people on the front line trying to solve a lot of the mysterious stuff that's going on, we just don't. And most researchers are doing research that's funded by somebody who wants to make a product out of it. So it's really hard to get... Um, the kind of avarice, uh, hungry kind of research on the front line of healthcare, because why would people bother? Yeah, well, it makes me think that uh, the expression "curiosity killed the cat," but you're saying curiosity will also cure the cat. Well, curiosity is going to help us figure out why cats need help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cats, puppies, whatever, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> um, this has been a very uh, long and sort of uh, detailed exploration of mold, but certainly there's tons more information to uh, to get out there. Again, uh, what was in it? Richard Schumacher was the one uh, fellow to look for online. Yeah, Schumacher. Schumacher. And then uh, there was the film Moldy. Yep. And uh, I thought there was one other resource that you pointed people to. What was the, the visual? The, the uh, yeah, so the visual contrast um, technology, you'd have to see a clinician who has that set up. I mean, like I said, I'm going to invest in that one. I have a few hundred dollars lying around. But um, I don't know if you have to have some kind of certification and training to use that or not. And I think there's an online version too, but I just intuitively kind of wonder how... How good is your computer screen? Because that seems like it's going to be as important as determining whether or not your brain is cooking or not. I'm, I'm just picturing people out there saying, I took a quiz on Facebook that tested my eyesight. <laughs> I got the eyesight of a hawk. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I would just get into that. Um, and, uh, again, I apologize if you were hoping for the, the big, you know, you just need to eat chug a mushroom every day and you're going to be, you know, enlightened and happy and beautiful and five years younger mm. and not have mold. <laughs> but this is something you're going to have to find somebody who, uh, knows, you know, as much about it as, you know, I do or you know, anybody else does and then commit to a few months of dealing with everything because the, the myopia of if it's fibromyalgia or chronic mold or, uh, whatever the new uh, trending, you know, thing that's taking everybody out is going to be, um, the response is always going to be the same. You have to fix everything. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. <laughs> this is the Fix Everything podcast. <laughs> uh, actually, no, this is uh, Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Uh, talking today about toxic mold syndrome and you. Uh, Michael, you're still looking at your notes there. Was there something we forgot? We should do another podcast on this that goes into all of the crazy details, but I don't, there's probably five people on the planet who want to get into all those crazy <laughs> details because it gets into, yeah, just a bunch of letters and numbers around genetics. So mm, yeah. maybe you can do that one on your own. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I'll stay awake for the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I'll be in my garden this afternoon. I'm sure the plants would want to hear about the epigenetics of <laughs> your immune system. There you go. Uh, Fusion Health Radio is uh, on Stitcher. It's on iTunes. It's on Podbean. You can find it on uh, Mixcloud. Uh, it's all over the internet. Uh, if you like what you heard today, please do share it with your friends um, and find some way to actually uh, comment on uh, what we've talked about today. Certainly, Michael is open to uh, questions. Um, he wouldn't sit here in front of me for an hour if he wasn't. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Facebook. Look for Fusion Health Radio there. Uh, we've actually had some 
a good uh, uptick, I think, in uh, listenership over the past uh, couple of episodes. Uh, looking at our stats, we have people tuning in from California. I think uh, Arizona was a big place um, on the eastern seaboard. We had a lot of people listening yeah, in. Florida. Florida, yeah. So uh, hello to you Yankees. And uh, for the Canucks that are out there, how's it going, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it. We're done? I guess so. Yeah. So again, Fusion House Radio, episode 32, uh, Toxic Mold Syndrome in You. Yep. I'm Anthony Senna. Michael Smith. And uh, please rate and re- review the podcast so that we can get a sense of how we're doing. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you in the next podcast, folks. Have a great day. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.